Welcome to the Gather Houston podcast. We are a Christian community practicing the way of Jesus in all parts of life and for the good of all people. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, So as you might know, 2023 is our year with Jesus where we are focusing uh, only on the life and the teachings of Jesus. So we are in the Gospels all year long. And right now we're walking through uh, the Gospel of John. And just for your uh, reference, so you know, when we're done walking through the Gospel of John, uh, we're going to spend some time looking at the parables of Jesus. And, and these really are some of Jesus' most famous stories and teaching. And so uh, I'm excited to get to walk through those uh, with you. T- but that's not today. Today we're still in John. And we've covered a lot of John. We've covered you know big, wild miracles and these big claims that Jesus makes about himself and these poetic metaphors that are used both by Jesus and by John. And uh, today we're going to be in John chapter 13. And this is the story of the Last Supper. So you may know it. And there is a lot uh, to pull from. And there's a, you know, plenty of, of beautiful, meaningful ideas. But we're going to kind of zoom in on one thing today. But first, uh, let me give you a little bit of context on the Last Supper. Uh, It's called the Last Supper because uh, Jesus and his disciples, shortly after this uh, meal that they have together, Jesus is betrayed and then arrested and then tried and then crucified. This is his, uh, in many ways, his last meal. And so even at this meal, at this Last Supper, that is all kind of looming over it. Jesus is foreshadowing in the way that he's teaching and uh, mentioning things about his death and about someone betraying him. It's all kind of looming over the meal. Uh, and Jesus and his disciples are likely celebrating a Passover Seder meal. And that may be something you're familiar with, or maybe you're not, but uh, Passover is and was a, a, a very big deal uh, for observant Jews. Like pa- Passover commemorates the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. And that is the story in the Old Testament that defines uh, kind of the narrative around the Israelites. And so they celebrate Passover. And it's a a memory and a retelling and this sort of symbolic expression of what happened when the Israelites uh, were freed from uh, Egypt. And so the roots of the Passover festival are in Exodus 12. God instructs the Israelites to sacrifice Uh, and eat a lamb with unleavened bread and with certain uh, spices and herbs. And then the lamb's blood was meant to be kind of painted on the doorposts of the Israelites' homes. And God then passed over their homes and instead uh, killed Egyptians instead of Israelites. And Israelites were were able to be freed. So by the time we get to Jesus, uh, the celebration of the Exodus in this Passover holiday had been really commemorated in rabbinic tradition. So this had become a thing, right? It wasn't just remember how God saved us from Egypt. It was every year we celebrate Passover in this specific way. It had become a tradition. It had been really solidified, uh, this Passover Seder, this meal, right? Where unleavened bread was broken, wine was served, diners reclined at the table, hymns were sung, and this Exodus story uh, the story about the Israelites being freed from their oppressors in Egypt, that story was retold and explained. So we can assume uh, that all of that is happening with Jesus and his disciples at this Last Supper. Right? It's a religious and spiritual experience that the rabbi Jesus is leading. And then also intertwined, Jesus is doing this teaching and Jesus is foretelling his death, and he's saying that someone in the room is going to betray him. So it's this spiritual, really traditional, important experience, and it's also ominous. 
and um, foretelling in so many ways, it had to feel for those disciples so significant, like such a big deal, like something is definitely happening. And in the middle of the meal, John tells us that Jesus got up from the table, he wrapped a towel around his waist, he poured water into a basin, and he started washing the disciples' feet. And this is what it says in John chapter 13. When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have, set, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So Jesus washes feet, which we don't wash each other's feet very often. You're welcome for that. But for the disciples of Jesus, it wasn't that weird to have your feet washed. This was something that happened in especially more formal environments. Right? So for these guys in this time, they wore sandals everywhere and they walked on unpaved roads all day long. So no concrete, no asphalt. They're in sandals all day long. And you've probably seen Da Vinci's Last Supper painting where they're sitting at this very low table and their feet are very close to the food. And so, of course, you would want your feet to be clean if your feet are going to be that close to the dinner that's being served. So it was common before you started a dinner like this, especially a formal dinner, especially a traditional religious dinner, that someone would wash your feet. Typically, the servant of the household would go around and wash everyone's feet. But Jesus takes this role of a servant. Right? He grabs the towel. He fills the water. And just on its own, that's a remarkable action for someone who just before in the story, he's saying that uh, he's the light of the world, that which we see, by that which we see everything. That Jesus is the good shepherd. That Jesus knows that we've called God the shepherd. But Jesus says, I I'm the good shepherd. And he is also a servant. He takes this lowly position, and then he gives uh, this amazing piece of teaching that we just read. And the main point of that teaching is really verses 14 to 15. Jesus says, now that, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. Do as I have done. Do as I have done. But Jesus does this remarkable thing and then says, you should do it too. He tells his disciples, you be a servant too. You act in humility too. You care for one another too. You take the lowly position too. Which was important for these guys to hear, these disciples, because you can imagine that they were feeling like they were moving up in the world, that they were becoming higher and higher status. These guys, these disciples that have been following Jesus, these 12 disciples, they're working class. They flunked rabbinic school. And then Jesus, this peculiar rabbi, he calls them out of insignificance. And they start following him. And now thousands of people are following him. And they're kind of the right-hand man to this cultural moment. And Jesus says, yeah, actually, you're going to be washing feet. You're going to be a servant. They were thinking they were going to be high status and important. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You're going to take the role of a servant. And some of us, we have the same issues that the disciples have, that we think that following Jesus will make our life easier, uh, more successful, uh, simpler. Um, but being a servant isn't easy. It isn't about being successful, and it's not ever simple. And so maybe you need to hear that today, just like the, those earliest disciples did. 
But I think for us, there may be something even more important to hear um, because for us right now, in this specific time and place, we have inherited a particular kind of Christian faith. We have. All of us, our faith was passed down to us. We, we've inherited a certain kind of faith. And it can be easy to take the idea of being a disciple of Jesus and turn it into a primarily intellectual exercise. Right? We think that agreeing in our mind to a certain set of ideas or a certain set of principles is the real goal of following Jesus. We say, oh, we're supposed to believe. And so in our mind, we think that belief is about holding a set of ideas in our mind. And we like believing in Jesus. We can do that. We can agree. We can appreciate Jesus for being a good guy, nice guy, good teacher. Right? We like agreeing intellectually. But Jesus didn't say, now believe like I believe. He didn't say, I've set an example of right theology or good ideology, and you should agree with it. Jesus said, do, do as I have done. And he, finish, he finishes uh, his thought later in uh, chapter 13. He says really famously, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, right? Not if you have the right theology, not if you are a worshiper even. It's not about purity. It's not about piety. Jesus doesn't ask us to worship him or agree with him. Jesus asks us to follow him to do, to act, to practice, and to embody this way of being in the world, to love one another, to care for each other, to take on the role of a servant. And for many of us, we were given a faith where we were taught to believe in and really defend the name of Jesus, but we never saw the value in practicing the way of Jesus. Doing what Jesus did, following the commands of Jesus, living the Jesus life, it seems like it should be the baseline of Christianity, but um, the research is in, and Christians in America, not Christians everywhere, but Christians in, in America in our particular context and time, have largely decided that living like Jesus isn't as important as um, believing the right kinds of things. Right? We've decided that belief, that right belief is more important than right living, right? That, that having the right answers should be prioritized over kindness and humility and forgiveness and love. That we should focus our time on agreeing intellectually and not practicing this way. And I'm not trying to make this up and I'm not trying to demonize any particular group of people. So there was a survey, this is real research, there was a survey done of church attending Christians. So like folks who consider themselves active in their faith, active Christians. And the survey, um, they surveyed equal number of people who considered themselves conservative and an equal number of people who considered themselves uh, liberal or progressive. And um, so in this survey, 75% of the active Christians who were surveyed regarded Jesus's call to love your enemy as immoral. So these are church-going Christians. These are people who consider themselves active. Equal number, conservative and progressive. 75% of them said uh, it's wrong to love your enemy. And conservatives claimed that loving your enemy was compromising morality. And progressives largely said that loving your enemy felt like being complicit with injustice. So that's unright for the narratives. Yeah. 75% of Christians think it's wrong to love your enemy. And the researcher, his name is Dan White, he said that it was so discouraging to him because he knew that these folks who were active in their faith, he knew they knew the verse where Jesus said to love your enemy. 
They knew the verse, but they were more devoted to their own way of life than the way of Jesus. Listen, you can agree in your mind to a set of principles. You can. You are capable. But at some point, if you identify, if you self-identify as a Christian, it's time to start doing, to act, to embody. Right? If we want to take seriously this faith that we've been given, then we have to actually listen to the instructions of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. Right? Those things need to become that which we filter the rest of our life through. It's embodiment more than certainty. It's imitation more than adoration. It's more loving your neighbor than it is passing a theology quiz. We should filter all of our decisions through the teachings and the way of Jesus. The injustice interrupting, outcast loving, sinner forgiving way of life, that's how we should make our decisions and live our life. The freeing the captive and and the loving the enemy and the turning of the other cheek and the turning over tables, all of it, is meant to be that which we filter our life through, that we do as he has done. Actually do it, not just appreciate it for a good idea, not just agree with it in our minds, but actually do it. And so for you, have you prioritized right belief over actually practicing and embodying? Maybe you appreciate the way of Jesus, but you aren't really living it out. I understand. Maybe you could just consider how you've evaluated where you are in your faith. Well, a lot of times we evaluate how we're doing with our faith with how certain we are and how much we feel like we have the right information. So when we're feeling like, you know, I think I would pass the heavenly theology test, we're good in our faith. And when we feel like, you know what, I think I would fail. I don't know if I know all the right answers. Then we think oh, our faith's not going well. And so maybe I could just encourage you to not evaluate your faith by having the right information or the wrong information, but actually start asking yourself, are you doing anything? Are you loving folks who are being left out? Are you forgiving? Are you radically forgiving people who maybe don't even deserve it? Your faith should never be evaluated on whether or not you would pass some made-up test that doesn't And start evaluating by saying, am I doing like Jesus has done? And then do you feel like you have a good understanding of the way of Jesus? Right, not just some ideology that's been given to you that's sort of Jesus-flavored. But do you know for yourself? We we talked about this earlier in this uh, walk through John, that it's our role to see for ourselves, to figure out who Jesus is. And so if you feel like, you know, I don't, I don't really even know, maybe you feel like you would like to embody the way of Jesus, but you don't know what it is. I, I, I am sorry, but as a pastor, I'm going to tell you, you should probably read your Bible. Read a gospel. Read the gospel of John. We're only 13 chapters through. You, could, you can get there. Just read it and see what it says. Look at what Jesus does. It's interesting and sometimes confusing and it's beautiful and it is a way of life that we should embody. And how do you think you could devote yourself to this radical way of Jesus? And kind of wherever you are on knowing what that way is, maybe just choose one or two practices, right? You won't be a master at this, at embodying the way of Jesus. So just pick a practice or two. Start small. Maybe just consider this week, who do I need to forgive? 
or um, in the in the places where I operate my life at school, at home, uh, at work, who's being left out? Who's being left out that needs to be included? I've been thinking about it this week in terms of um, intentions and outcomes. Because agreeing in your mind with a set of ideas is like having a really good intention. It just lives in your mind. And um, we have a lot of good intentions in our life, I believe that. But I think for most of us in our faith, it's time to start measuring the outcomes a little bit more. right? Christians are really good at saying, well, I meant well. Like when I had that rude conversation with that person about how sinful they were, well, I meant well. Your intentions do matter, but the outcomes always outweigh the intention. Your beliefs matter, but how you practice them, how you embody those beliefs, will always outweigh the belief itself. Right? Jesus takes a role of a servant, and then he says, do this too. Don't just agree with this idea. Don't just appreciate it. Do it. Act. Practice. Embody. A lot of you uh, know my story, but I grew up uh, in a Southern Baptist church full, with a family full of Southern Baptist ministers. I went to a Baptist university uh, for undergrad and for grad school, and uh, I've been a pastor now for a little more than 10 years. I've worked in three different uh, church communities, and um, one of the things that I've had to unravel the most, that I've had to unlearn the most, is that um, the ends don't justify the means. It was, it was communicated to me in church environments and especially working in churches that the ends did and could and should justify the means. When we said it clearly at times, we said it covertly at, at others, we said proudly in churches about the money and time and staff we used that if one person makes a decision to follow Jesus, it was all worth it. And it didn't matter what manipulative tactics we used or how money was misspent. If a decision was made, then it was worth it. We had decided there was an end that justified any means. And you can check the receipts on some of our more recent political elections. But the end goal was getting political power, no matter how ugly or unchristian the means were. And I want you to know today, I want to tell you today, that we are called to do and to practice and to embody. And all of the doing matters. The ends never justify the means. There is no righteous end that will justify unrighteous means. There is no powerful or impressive end that will justify oppressive means. The one should never be sacrificed for the many. All of the doing, all of your actions, all of your character, it does matter, no matter the end. So when we are forced by the Christian culture of America that we live in to ask, uh, should we gain political power and personal freedom by leveraging white supremacy and bigotry? The answer is no. The ends never justify the means. All of the doing matters. As a community, when we ask, should we grow a big and impressive church? 
by spending tithe money on marketing and free giveaways and bait and switch tactics? We answer, no. The ends never justify the means. All of the doing matters. Should we sweep abuse under the rug because of an impressive leader? No. The ends never justify the means. All of the doing matters. All of the practicing matters. All of the embodying matters. It all matters. And so gather practice this way of humility and service and care in every part of your life. Let it overflow into your parenting and into your partnering. Let it seep into how you operate at work and how you talk to the barista at your favorite coffee shop. Every bit of it matters. It all matters. Practice love everywhere. Serve anywhere. Include everyone. It all matters. The ends never justify the means. And so gather, this is my prayer for us today. Find freedom in the reality that God is not testing your theological expertise. And be inspired today to practice, to embody, and to embrace the way of revolutionary love. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in Gather, check out our website at gatherhouston.org or visit us on Sunday at 10 a.m.